tonight, straight from the source, it's the $48 million question that's about to be answered for Rudy Giuliani as a jury now deliberates the cost of his election lies. Plus, CNN getting rare access inside of Gaza tonight as Clarissa Ward will take us to the front lines of a humanitarian catastrophe, the horrors that she saw on the ground. Also, Vladimir Putin taking questions in his first extended news conference since invading Ukraine and evidently trying to put any rumors about his body double to bed using a deep fake to do so. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. A verdict is expected very soon in the defamation trial against Rudy Giuliani, and his own lawyer says that it could be, quote, the civil equivalent of the death penalty. The jury, made up of eight people of his peers, will resume deliberations tomorrow morning in Washington, and they will be the ones to determine just how much Giuliani owes the two former Georgia election workers for nearly destroying their lives with conspiracies and flat-out lies. Giuliani did not testify today after insisting that he would do so, backing out just at the last minute with no real explanation about why. He also apparently didn't pay very close attention to the closing arguments that were made by the lawyer representing Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, the mother and daughter that a judge has already said he defamed. Instead, for more than an hour, Giuliani sat intently reading news stories on his laptop, which was propped up on the defense table. The former election workers are each asking for at least $24 million in reputational damages after they were falsely accused of committing election fraud. Their lawyer said he'll leave it to the jury to consider just how much Giuliani should be ordered to pay for those damages. That same jury heard gut-wrenching testimony from both Freeman and Moss and also these disturbing voicemails from people who threatened their lives. You're going to jail, Ruby. You're going to get locked up, Ruby. You're all going to jail, you piece of Hey, I hope you like jail because that's where you're going on your way to hell. Yeah, those are real voicemails that two women who volunteered to be election workers in 2020 got simply for counting the votes. Giuliani's lawyer, after the jury heard those voicemails, is asking the jury for mercy, asking them to remember his client by his reputation from more than 20 years ago as the mayor of New York City, as a former federal prosecutor. Of course, invoking that legacy could also remind the jury he should have known better. I want to break all of this down as we wait for what the jury does decide with Ellie Honig, CNN's senior legal analyst and the former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, the very office that Rudy Giuliani led decades ago, and Andrew Kurtzman, who has covered Rudy Giuliani extensively for three decades. He's the author of Giuliani, The Rise and Tragic Fall of America's Mayor, something we've obviously been following closely on this show. Ellie, what do you think, what do you make of Giuliani insisting all along that he was going to testify and then just pulling out at the last minute. Well, it's the smartest move he's made in years. I mean, if he had taken the stand, imagine what a catastrophe that would have been. This man is a pathological liar. He can't help himself. This case is really what happens when you combine vicious, over-the-top defamation against innocent victims with the single worst legal strategy ever devised by a human mind. I mean, let's go through the way Rudy and his lawyer approach this case. First, 
They agreed that they were liable, that Rudy was liable. They conceded, yes, what he did was defamatory. Now, there may be a strategy there if your strategy is, we're just going to try to minimize damages. We're going to go in there. Rudy's going to express remorse. He's going to say, I got caught up in something stupid. I didn't intend for my words to have this effect. I'm sorry. Maybe you can minimize damages. Instead, they go in on this damages trial and commit more defamation. Uh, They are just asking for a massive verdict, and I think we're going to see that tomorrow. I mean, the closing argument itself was, uh, I mean, really remarkable. Uh, he was saying that Rudy Giuliani is a good man, talking about how he was, you know, as you charter, covered his rise. He said he hasn't exact, exactly helped himself with some of the things that have happened in the last few days. I take it by that he means probably continuing to defame the women outside of the court. And he also said, you know, talked about his age and said that he's having a hard time accepting the facts about this case. (laughs) I don't think he's having a hard time accepting the facts. I think that one of the things, maybe the reason I'm most fascinated by Giuliani and spent three decades covering him is this sense of moral certitude that he's right and you're wrong. And he's, you know, this is the reason he almost became a priest. And he's always felt that he has kind of the corner on morality, right? Even when he does terribly immoral things. So, you know, he's on the brink, uh, the brink of bankruptcy. He's been indicted. He's at 10 civil suits against him. He's effectively been disbarred. This, he's on, been on a downward spiral and he's almost hit rock bottom right now. And there he was the other night outside saying that he was right and Ruby Freeman and Shane Moss actually were fixing the election. I mean, he's a remarkably arrogant person who will, you know, go to his grave believing he was right, the election was stolen, Donald Trump was a victim. I mean, but how does the jury listen to to this, to what he's saying outside of court, but also to what they're saying in court and saying, you know, don't remember this Rudy Giuliani, think of him after after 9-11 and as the mayor of New York and all of these claims that they were making about what he was like then saying that's, I mean, that's not what the jury's considering. It's irrelevant. This isn't about, is Rudy a good person? Was he a good person two decades ago? This is about what damage did Rudy Giuliani's defamation do to Ms. Moss and Ms. Freeman? And there's two aspects of this, and I think they're both going to come into play tomorrow. When the jury returns its verdict, there's going to be compensatory damages, meaning you have to repay these people for the actual out-of-pocket damages they suffered or economic opportunities they lost. Then there's what we call punitive damage, which is this case is why we have punitive damages, because it allows the jury to send a message to tell him what you did was so grotesque, so over the top that we need to punish you, deter you and deter others. And I think we're going to see heavy numbers on both of those. You think heavy numbers? I mean, I do. We have talked extensively that he doesn't have the money to pay that. No, he's, you know, this is a person who used to own six homes, was, uh, had 11 country club memberships. Uh, he capitalized on his 9-11 fame and opened a consulting firm that made $100 million in five years. He flew on private jets. I mean, this is a person who was born lower middle class in Brooklyn. His father was... An, enforce, an enforcer for a small-time criminal. He went to jail for robbing a milkman. And Giuliani then created astonishing wealth, became one of the most beloved people on the planet. You know, what? where he is now is uh, is quite a fall from where he is. But also, can we, go ahead. Well, I was just saying, if I can add to I never met the man. But as you said, I worked in the Southern District of New York 20 or so years after he was there. I started in 2004. When I started there, it was two and change years after 9-11. He was a revered figure. I was proud to say I worked at the same office that Rudy Giuliani 
once led. And now I mean, there's no other way to say it. he's a disgrace to the legal profession. Uh, I don't know that I've ever seen a lawyer have such a great and drastic fall. I mean, the judge for or the lawyer for the two women even quoted, you know, what he was saying back then in his book, uh, Leadership, and quoted a line from from dad saying, quote, never pick on somebody smaller than you. <laughs> and just the irony that Rudy Giuliani right. Right. did precisely that with these two random women who were just there doing their jobs and then were getting those hideous voicemails. They felt like they couldn't go to the grocery store. Right. I mean, he, he, uh, he took on the most powerless, defenseless people and completely destroyed their reputations. Again, did he do it, you know, thinking that he, he was, you know, in a cynical way, thinking he was doing something malevolent? No. He was, he's kind of a martyr to the cause, Right. Donald Trump uh, was robbed of the election and, you know, and justifies the means. And we're going to, like, use these two women to, to prove our case. You know, the um, fairness and morality be damned. When, when, when we think about all the damage done by the lie about election fraud, we tend to think about institutional damage, damage to our democracy, to our public faith. But there's human beings. I mean, Ms. Freeman and Ms. Mott, their lives we're torn apart. There's right. real human cost to this. How much do you think? I mean, they're each asking for $24 million. Yeah. If they even get a quarter of that, Giuliani's lawyer said he couldn't pay that. But how much do you think that they'll actually get here? Because what their attorney is arguing is send a message to, to the world. Send a message to other people who may try to do what Rudy Giuliani did by rewarding or awarding them huge damages. I think they're going to get close to that top number that they're asking. Really? For. Yeah, I do. I think it, for that exact reason, I think there's going to be a message sent. Now, Andrew knows a bit more about Rudy's actual finances. I don't think they're under any illusions. I don't think Ms. Freeman and Ms. Moss expect to get rich off this because you can only get blood from a stone. You can't get blood from a stone. And I don't think Rudy has that much liquid. No, I mean, he's he's being sued by his uh, by his lawyer because he can't right. afford his uh, his legal bills. Again, these there are 10 civil suits uh, against him. I mean, he's... Uh, he's got to be headed towards bankruptcy, bankruptcy no matter what happens. Well, and he's still sure. facing the case in Georgia, you know, where he's been indicted right. as well. Right. And, and I have to bring this up because this was one of the most amazing things I saw today. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution reported that, as we know, two of the other, you know, co-defendants here, Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chesborough, took guilty pleas. And as a part of a condition for those guilty pleas, they were told to write apology letters by, by the DA. We got to look at them today. They're each one sentence long, and Sidney Powell's has written on this lined notebook paper. She said, quote, I apologize for my actions in connection with the events in Coffee County. Chesborough wrote, I apologize to the citizens of the state of Georgia and Fulton County for my involvement in count 15 of the indictment. I mean, that reads like an apology that like when you're you hit your sibling or something as a child <laughs> and your parents like apologize right. to your brother. And you're like, sorry. Sorry. You don't really fault. you don't really mean it. Yeah. I mean, look. I'm going to take a, maybe a contrarian position on this. They treated this like a joke, and they should have, because this is not a thing that real prosecutors do. You don't make people write apology letters. This isn't kindergarten. The way people accept responsibility is they go into court, they plead guilty, they get under oath, they admit to the judge what they did. This is a stunt by the DA uh, requiring these, thank you, these apology letters. And I almost applauded when I saw that they had treated it with disdain and sarcasm. I know it's it's not decorous of them to write these sort of sarcastic, 
brush off notes, but but I think it's deserving of this whole stunt. Could by I, could I posit one more serious thing, sure. which is that he will not admit uh, any kind of guilt in, in this case, right? Isn't that kind of an answer to those who say, oh, eventually Giuliani will turn on Trump? I mean, I've never believed he would just because he's Rudy Giuliani, but I, I don't see him you know, maybe, you know, in the threat of jail, maybe in the last, you know, the last second. But he's not the kind of guy who's ever going to go in front of a camera or write the one sentence saying I was wrong. Rudy Giuliani is this fantasy that Rudy Giuliani is going to be a cooperating witness against Donald Trump will not happen because, A, I don't know that Rudy will ever come clean. I will tell you no sane prosecutor would ever use Rudy Giuliani as a witness, put him on a stand and rely on him. He has been trying to get Trump to pay his legal bills unsuccessfully. Andrew Kurtzman, Ellie Honig, unsuccessfully being the key word there. Thank you both. In Washington today, you could smell the jet fumes as House lawmakers were leaving town for the long holiday recess, not before authorizing an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. We'll speak with a member of the House Oversight Committee right after this. Also, speaking of evidence, a follow-up to our interview Monday night with Senator Ron Johnson. These folks did nothing different than what many Democrats have done in, in many states. Which I didn't come one, prepared sir? to give you the exact states, but it's happened. It's happened repeatedly. It has happened repeatedly. Just go check the books. Which books? This week, House Republicans formalized their impeachment inquiry into President Biden, once again putting the country on a road that was once rarely traveled in our nation's history but not anymore. This all comes as a GOP investigation into Hunter Biden's business dealings has so far struggled to bear any evidence of wrongdoing by his father, President Biden. The president's son this week did make his first public statement since being criminally indicted, which has happened twice. He slammed Republicans and staunchly defended his father. My father was not financially involved in my business, not as a practicing lawyer, not as a board member of Burisma, not in my partnership with a Chinese private businessman, not in my investments at home nor abroad, and certainly not as an artist. Joining me tonight, Republican Congressman Tim Burchett, uh, who serves on the House Oversight Committee, which is leading the investigation into President Biden. Congressman, thanks for being here. If this doesn't warrant any new substantial evidence, will you vote to impeach President Biden? Well, I'd like to see all the evidence uh, put forth to the to the country. There's $30 million that flown through Hunter. And, you know, the the indications are what what we've seen is that it was just Hunter was just selling influence. And it sure wasn't Hunter's influence. It was his daddy's influence. And and, I, you know, and the question remains, though, if was this all done while he was vice president? Does that carry over um, when he's president? And that's you know, that, that's why there's an inquiry. We didn't move to an impeachment like they did Trump, just in a quick secret meeting in the skiff and then bring it out to the floor kind of thing. Uh, you know, and, and, and the speaker's catching a lot of grief. But the reality is, Ms. Collins, that, that he is just following the rules. And, and these are the rules but of Congress. And we're not going to we're not going to jump over anything. And we're going to bring all the evidence forward and then allow Congress and the American people to make a decision. You just mentioned uh, the evidence that Republicans already have gotten, I mean, using their subpoena power, they got 36,000 pages of bank records, 2,000 pages of the suspicious suspicious activity reports of the Treasury Department, dozens of hours of testimony from people who used to work with Hunter Biden. And still, Senator Chuck Grassley, who has been deeply involved in this, says he has seen no evidence 
of Joe Biden being connected to his son's business dealings. I mean, have you seen any evidence of that? Other than the um, the recent $5 million from the communist Chinese to Hunter, it took a very circuitous route. I know it's a, you think that's a big word for somebody from East Tennessee to use, but in fact, it did take a circuitous route. Hunter Biden was involved in a $5 million transaction. It went to Hunter. It went to one of his 22 shell corporations. Well, that's what I, that's the circuitous route. It went to Joe. Uh, it went to James Biden, um, uh, President Biden's brother, and then there's a forty thousand dollar check to the to President Joe Biden. So uh, you know, if if the thing is, there, will will this line up with all that? And that's the question. And I think that's why we're we're doing this this route instead of just but just running him up to the hangman's nose. If you don't see anything new or substantial (laughs) than what we've seen, which so far none of it has connected to President Biden himself, despite how it's kind of been fashioned every time we've heard from people, uh, are you going to vote to impeach him if nothing new comes out? Well, if it's $40,000 that flowed through a communist Chinese when President Biden said, in fact, he was not involved with it, he said he never talked to him, and then we'd have testimony that there was, we have a you know, we've got the email from the bank saying, hey, we need to get out of business with these folks. They're not selling a product. And of course, everybody says, well, what about Trump? And you and I both know Trump sold cheap steaks and crappy ties. He at least had a product. And all Hunter Biden was selling was influence and obviously the Biden name. And I think in testimony, if testimony does show that President Biden was involved in some sort of pay to play or bribery type scheme, then yes, I will vote to impeach him. But if it does not show anything, then I won't. That's the bottom line. You know, it just when we hear the complaints about influence peddling, I covered the Trump White House. I didn't hear a lot of complaints from Republicans then about, you know, his children and what they were making from from their father being president. But when it comes to President Biden himself, I mean, what are the specific crimes that Republicans are investigating Uh, Joe Biden for? Well, I'm glad you brought up his children, because, as you well know, they were. Uh, subpoenaed and showed up multiple times in the skiff in a private uh, deposition, which and and public, which Hunter decided not to do. He said his last thing he said in his in his so-called interview out that Schwab uh, uh, arranged for him that he said, and I will answer all your questions. And then he did just like his father did. He turned around and walked off and got into his taxpayer. You know, subsidized You're suburban unhappy about and drove that, off. That, that statement that he came out and gave yesterday, but his offer is to testify publicly. He His argument is that if he does it behind closed doors, the Republicans will, will twist his words or whatever he says. Uh, I understand you don't like the prospect. You want him to come behind closed doors, but why not just have him testify publicly? Why not take him up on that offer if you have the questions that you say you have? I don't have a problem with it, but you know as well as I do, it'll just be time to showboat. And then and that's what they did with, during the Trump impeachment. They did it behind doors. And then the Democrats walked right out and leaked everything that was said in the skiff. And that's why you do it in a secure environment, the skiff. You can't even take that gum. You can't even take your cell phone in there. And it was just a constant but leak. But you would be they fine with him testifying narrative. publicly, you're saying? I don't, I don't care. I don't care where he does it. I'd like to ask you. I'd like him to answer some questions because he's either going to have to tell the truth or he's going to have to plead the fifth. And that's all he can do. If he lies... He's gone. But, you know, if you look at all the uh, there's two other folks in the Trump administration that refused to testify and they were held in contempt of Congress. 
and yet you're not you're not seeing that on with him at all. And so I, I would hope that he's held up to the same standard as everybody else is. There were a lot of Republican colleagues of your Republican colleagues who also were were subpoenaed and did not respond to those subpoenas. So I think that's why there's questions about how much credibility well, they have. Well, that, that was in a spe- that was in a special committee, the January sixth committee. And as you remember, Nancy Pelosi wanted to select the Republicans, and she did. She wouldn't allow Jim Jordan to even be on that committee. Well, these are and people so who were that, talking that, to President Trump on January 6th. And I think there were questions about whether or not they could investigate something that they were deeply involved in. But I do want to ask you, because from your committee, you know, we last saw the first impeachment hearing back in September. It was very chaotic. The, even Republican witnesses who were there said they had not seen any direct evidence or firsthand evidence of wrongdoing by President Biden. There hasn't been one since. Do you all have one planned? Is there going to be another I don't know. That's up to Chairman Comer and, of course, Chairman Jordan. But if you remember, it started off as every couple of months something came out and then it became every couple of weeks. And it just became about every couple of days. That was the latest with the five million dollars with the communist Chinese. And you have to remember, Joe Biden said, my my son's not involved in any business with the Chinese when, in fact, there was a five million dollar transfer. But is that what you're going to impeach him over? You know, saying his son wasn't involved in something. and Obviously. Obviously, to be in Washington, it's almost a prerequisite now to lie in either party. But if we found out that there was, in fact, influence to the communist Chinese to President Joe Biden, then yes, ma'am, we should. China is an enemy of this country, and we better start admitting that and taking uh, full awareness of of their capabilities because they are in every aspect of our lives right now. We have seen no evidence of that. We'll see if this inquiry turns that up. Well, That's what the inquiry is all about. That I mean, there's the been a lot of evidence collected so far, as I just laid out, and still still nothing tying it directly to President Biden. We'll obviously continue to follow it closely. Congressman Tim Burchett, I see you're in the car there. I know you got to go. Thank you for your time tonight. Yep. I hope you have a very politically incorrect Merry Christmas, Ms. Collins. Thank you, Congressman. Meanwhile, the Biden administration is now urging Israel to scale down its assault in Gaza to save more civilian lives. CNN is also getting a rare, up-close look at the suffering It has been happening inside Gaza. We've been hearing about it. Now you can see it from CNN cameras. That's right after this. Tonight, the United States is putting more pressure on Israel to end its large-scale ground campaign that is underway in Gaza. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan was there delivering that message in person to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, urging the IDF to conduct a more precise, lower-intensity operation within the next few weeks, we are told. But Israel appears to be pushing back, at least some officials. The defense minister said that he expects this war against Hamas will still go on for several months. Of course, all of this is a devastating prospect for the innocent Gazan civilians who are suffering horrific casualties and a humanitarian nightmare. CNN's Clarissa Ward got exclusive access to a field hospital in southern Gaza. This is part of what she saw. Eight-year-old Janan was lucky enough to survive a strike on her family home that crushed her femur but spared her immediate family. She says she's not in pain, so that's good. Her mother, Hiba, was out when it happened. I went to the hospital to look for her, she says. And I came here, and I found her here. The doctors told me what happened with her, 
and I made sure that she's okay. Thank God. They bombed the house in front of us and then our home, Janan tells us. I was sitting next to my grandfather, and my grandfather held me, and my uncle was fine. So he is the one who took us out. Don't cry. Here tonight, Mark Regev, senior advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu and a former Israeli ambassador to the UK. Thank you, Ambassador, for being here. I mean, you just heard part of what Clarissa saw when she was in Gaza. It seems like that, that have President Biden himself warning about Israel risking losing global support as it is continuing to fight this war. How concerned are you about that? Well, we have to fight this war. It wasn't a war that we we sought, but it's a war that we've been forced to fight and, and we have to win it. Because leaving Hamas in power in the Gaza Strip is just to condemn us all to, to more bloodshed in the future. Hamas says openly that they would repeat the October 7th attack again and again and again. Their words, they would continue to try to butcher our people. And frankly, Caitlin, Israelis just refuse to live any longer with this terrorist threat on our southern border. We will, as our defense minister said, we will eliminate this terror threat. And so Israelis do not have to live in fear of terrorists crossing the frontier and butchering their children. No one should have to live like that. We refuse to live like that. But but what about the scenes in Gaza? I mean, I understand the Israel's purpose with Hamas. I mean, that's been made quite clear. But the scenes you just saw, a little girl with her, her femur crushed, one child with a disfigured face calling out, thinking a nurse was his father. I mean, what is your reaction to, to seeing what is happening inside of Gaza? So obviously it's an ongoing tragedy. Uh, but your reporter was visiting a field hospital established by the United Arab Emirates, a field hospital that Israel has encouraged. And there are other countries that are setting up field hospitals. And this is part of a humanitarian effort that Israel is facilitating, that Israel is supporting, that Israel is encouraging other countries to get involved as well. We want to see, as we pursue Hamas, who is a bitter and brutal enemy, we want to see a maximum humanitarian effort for the people of Gaza, that anyone who has been injured in the crossfire between the Israeli Defense Forces and the Hamas terrorists, that there'll be medical support for them, other humanitarian support. We understand that's part of our values, part of our moral values, but we also understand that this is also successful counterterrorism. We've got to show that our enemy is only the terrorists and that we, 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 we will do what needs to be done to support the Gazan civilian population. Yeah. Well, I should note that that field hospital that Clarissa visited, the doctors told her there it is the only one in that area that has any hospital beds left and it has very few left. But let me ask you about CNN reporting that nearly half of the air-to-ground munitions that Israel has been using in Gaza since October 7th have been these unguided uh, munitions. They're known as dumb bombs. Would that not undercut the claim from Israel that you were trying to minimize the civilian casualties given the very nature, the imprecise nature of these weapons? Not at all. Obviously, we're using different munitions, uh, the sort of munitions that the U.S. Army uses as well. And if you read the, your own report, the CNN report, closely, you will see that the Israeli Air Force actually adopts tech t tactics in the way we use these weapons to make them 
precision-guided, as, as good as precision-guided weapons. Because uh, the idea that Israel just randomly targets Gaza, that we carpet bomb the place, that's just frankly not true. We are very specific in the targets we choose. There's a, a process, and it was shown to the Americans today, a process how we identify a target, how we choose the munitions for that target, that we look at the collateral damage to see is there inordinate collateral damage that makes such an attack uh, not viable. And then finally, do we only after going through a rigorous process of checking and balancing and looking again, do we actually launch such an attack on a Hamas target? So you feel confident that you can know where these unguided bombs, these dumb bombs are going, even though they have a 45 to 45, 40 to 45 percent accuracy rate. You feel confident that you know that it's actually landing on what you're targeting and not potentially a child in Gaza. Your own report, and I urge you to read it again, says specifically that the Israeli Air Force has adopted uh, tactics in the way we drop those bombs that make them far, far more accurate. You quote a senior American official who's got knowledge on the subject who attests to that. I did read the report closely, but I think we still have to ask about what exactly Israel is using in Gaza. You mentioned showing the U.S. how you are trying to make those more precise. Jake Sullivan President Biden's national security advisor is obviously in Israel. We are told that the U.S. expects that Israel will transition to a lower intensity strategy focused on intelligence based raids in Gaza compared to what Israel is doing now. Is that accurate? And when does Israel plan to to shift to that phase, Ambassador? So it's clear we can move to the next phase when we finish the current phase. And the truth is, in the northern part of the Gaza Strip, we've had very strong success. We're seeing more and more uh, Hamas uh, terrorists uh, voluntarily surrender. They understand the game is up uh, and, and we're moving there ahead very quickly. And I think given a bit more time, we can do the same in the south. There's no point finishing this when it's not over. There's no point finishing this with Hamas still alive. Then we're just back to square one. How much we'll have more, more time, down the road. How much more time do you expect that that, that, that will be? I can't give you a specific framework now. But it's crucial the job is done right. There's no point going through all this and then just have to go through it all again and down the road. This has to finish in the right way, in a way that Hamas's military machine is destroyed, that Hamas no longer controls the Gaza Strip. That will offer a better opportunity, obviously, for the people of southern Israel, but also for the people of Gaza who deserve better than this extreme terror regime. Ambassador, does that include with the, the death of Yahya Sinwar? That's when this phase will be over? Uh, obviously, uh, just as it was very important for the United States to take out Osama bin Laden after the terrible al-Qaeda attacks on New York and Washington, uh, it's very important for us to take out the senior Hamas leadership. But that is one in a number of factors that has to be achieved for us to achieve the victory that we, 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 we need. Okay, so that's a yes. He'll be taken out. That's only a matter of time. Ambassador Mark Regev, thank you for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. Also tonight in Russia, an unusual press conference being held by Vladimir Putin for the first time for, in this nature since he launched his invasion of Ukraine. A call-in show including his very own deepfake. We'll tell you more on what you're seeing here right after a quick break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. 
At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Earlier today, we heard from Russian President Vladimir Putin in his first major news conference since he invaded Ukraine nearly two years ago. With Western media there in attendance, the Russian leader confidently predicted that Russia will outlast Western support for Ukraine. Today, Ukraine produces almost nothing. They're trying to preserve something, but they produced almost nothing. They get everything, excuse the bad manners, for free. But this freebie may end someday, and apparently it is ending. This highly choreographed call-in show from the Kremlin lasted over four hours. It ranged from acknowledging, for the first time, an American journalist who is wrongfully being held in Russia to the price of eggs. Joining me here tonight, Time correspondent Simon Schuster, who covers Ukraine and Russia, also the author of The Showman, Inside the Invasion that Shook the World and Made a Leader of Vladimir Zelensky. Thank you for being here. I mean, to listen to this marathon press conference, obviously one of the biggest takeaways as we're watching this fight in Washington over funding for Ukraine is he very clearly thinks that it's about to be over. He does, yeah. And and it was a very confident Putin. Um, I I think he has reason to be pretty sure of himself. Um, But what I took away just watching watching the events today was this amazing split screen, uh, you know, with Putin on the one hand, trying to get across to his people that we need to be uh, in this war for the long haul. We're, we're facing the West. We're, we're in a kind of existential battle with the West and preparing them for a kind of forever war, uh, an almost cult of war. And then on the other hand, you had um, President Zelensky able to tell his people, look, the European Union is opening uh, membership talks with us. So I, I think the visions that the two leaders today presented to their people were so dramatically different. One is is able to tell his people at least, look, at the end of this long, horrific war, we do have an opportunity to live in prosperity with the European Union. They are opening the door to us. And Putin is only talking about continued confrontation with the West. Uh, And any time that he sees a bit of reason to feel confident, he continues to to go back to these um, really dramatic stakes, really dramatic demands of swallowing basically all of Ukraine, demilitarizing Ukraine, and confronting the West for for years and years to come. Yeah, as he's talked about, you know, we've heard Republicans talking about a negotiated settlement. I mean, he made clear he's not looking to make any any concessions. The other interesting moment was where you saw, you know, two Putins on screen. You know, there's been all these questions about his health, whether or not he uses a body double, which obviously was something that he was trying to reference. I mean, what did you make of him showing this, the real Putin on the left and then the AI-generated version on the right? I mean, he's clearly trying to, to say, I'm not using a body, body double. I'm in good health. I'm fine. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of trolling. Uh, I, I think, you know, the idea that he uses a body double or that he has cancer or, or some other grave illness that he might soon croak and then this whole war will be resolved by itself uh, you know, I think it's it's a it's a it's a fanciful topic. It's it's often discussed in in the kind of um, you know in Ukraine in the Ukrainian blogosphere. Um, I think he's just trying to point out that no, people, I'm in this for the long haul. Don't count on me to kind of step aside or or get ill or fall away. I'm I'm going to keep fighting you uh, every chance I get. For also for the first time, we saw him acknowledge that they are 
holding Evan Gershkovich. And, you know, it's been 260 days now that the Wall Street Journal reporter has been being held. He said that there's a dialogue between U.S. officials and Russian officials, but talked about it being a challenging conversation. What is that? How do you read into that? What does that mean, do you think? Well, I'm, I'm really glad that my colleague from The New York Times, Valerie Hopkins, was able to put that question to him, to his face, mm -hmm. and make him uh, speak on that issue. You know, I think, I think we're all really concerned about Evan Gershkovich and, and the negotiations to release him. You know, I think the way Putin answered it gave me the sense that he kind of enjoys, at least on, on this issue, uh, being able to needle the, the United States. Uh, the United States wants something from him. They want Evan to be set free, as he should be. And, and Putin uh, seems to be in no hurry to release him. Apparently, he enjoys uh, having these kinds of you know, negotiations and debates with the United States, haggling over hostages and so on. Th this is a place he feels comfortable. And not just him, Paul Whelan as well, who was yep, obviously yep. also brought up in that. Simon Schuster, can't wait to read the book. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Thank you. Yeah. We'll continue to follow that. Also, an important follow-up coming up. If you were watching the show on Monday night when Republican Senator Ron Johnson was here making this claim about fake electors. These folks did nothing different than what many Democrats have done in, in many states they certainly throughout our did, history. Senator, Democrats have done the same thing. In, Republicans in Wisconsin, there has fake slates of electors. Senator Ron Johnson may not have read the books that he told us to check very closely. He was here on the show Monday night, and when he was asked a pretty simple question, should someone who tried to overturn the last election be involved in overseeing the next one, the Wisconsin Republican said this. Which Democrats one? have done the same thing. In, Republicans in Wisconsin, never tried to been criminalize fake slates of electors? No, it's, it's happened in different states. I, Which I, I one, didn't come sir? prepared to give you the exact states, but it's happened. It's happened repeatedly. It has happened repeatedly. Just go check the books. Which books? I mean, there have been alternate slates of electors by Democrat uh, electors in our history. Again, I, you didn't. This wasn't what this interview was going to be about. I'll, I'll come and I'll provide you the information. I look forward to your office sending that information. We'll publish it if it's, if we'll it's accurate. That. So he followed up on Twitter, listed the four examples that you see here, none of which proved his point. Democrats have not repeatedly used alternate slates of electors. None even come close to what Republicans did in 2020. Really, just one of the examples he cites even is relevant to this. There's some big differences. So I'll tell you what they are. The senator is pointing to the 1960 election, something that we have seen Republicans bring up repeatedly since Trump lost in 2020. That year, Democrats in Hawaii sent an alternative slate of electors to Congress. Vice President Richard Nixon at the time and John F. Kennedy, they were nearly tied in the state. But here, the facts about what happened next are critical. At the time, a recount was still underway, one that ultimately flipped the results from Nixon to Kennedy. A judge would rule that the Kennedy electors were legitimate. And I should note that when Kennedy was ultimately the winner in the final count in Hawaii, it was Nixon himself, as vice president, who presided over the session approving that slate of electors instead of his own on January 6, 1961. In 2020, meanwhile, the recount in Wisconsin was over. It showed that Biden did indeed win Senator Ron Johnson's home state. Wisconsin's alternate GOP electors met more than two weeks after that recount and still signed a false certificate of electors. Trump and his supporters, of course, would go on to lose seven more lawsuits in Wisconsin related to the electors. 
The other examples on Senator Johnson's list are instances where Democrats voiced objection to the election results. Not exactly instances of plots to overturn an election that was affirmed by recounts and by the courts, but even if you disagree with what those Democrats did, most importantly here, those instances went nowhere because the candidates who lost those elections conceded them. Of course, Senator Ron Johnson's role in this has also come under scrutiny, given the text message, messages showing that his chief of staff was trying to deliver a, quote, alter, alternate slates of electors for Michigan and Wisconsin directly to Vice President Pence on January 6th, something that will surely be included in the history books. Up next to a load of bull in a big city, commuters with a surprise on their way to work today, how the runaway was tracked down. New Jersey commuters on their way to New York this morning were hit with delays because of a giant steer on the tracks who was refusing to move out of the way. I'm not kidding here. The Longhorn bovine on his own schedule, no care for the delays that he was causing on one of our nation's busiest rail routes. Passengers rightly surprised by the running of the bull, singular so far, from Spain. A local news outlet says that Animal, Tro Animal Control said that he escaped a meat supplier about three miles from Newark's Penn Station. After a 45-minute delay, he was coaxed off the tracks with no injuries to commuters or himself, thankfully. By dinner time, he was given the name Ricardo. He is now safe at an animal sanctuary where we are told he will spend the rest of his days. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Such a busy news night. Also, back with you tomorrow night. CNN News Night with Abby Phillips starts right now. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.